There was a certain elderly couple that had been married for about 50 years. And uh, one night as the husband was just kind of there on his side of the bed, the wife said to him very tenderly, you know, when we were younger, you used to hold my hand when we were in bed. And so with a little bit of hesitation, he slid his hand over and grabbed his wife's hand. That made her happy. But after a couple minutes, she said, you know what? When we were younger, you used to snuggle with me also. And so hesitantly, the husband kind of slid over in bed a little closer to his wife and began to snuggle with her. She made she had, that made her pretty happy. But after a couple minutes, she said one more thing. She says, you know what? When we were younger, you used to nibble on my ear. Well, the guy was really embarrassed at this point. He threw back the covers and started walking across the room. This kind of hurt his wife's feelings. She said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to get my teeth. (laughs) Well, now that I've got you laughing, today's message, part three in our message series on marriage renovation, we're going to talk today about sexual intimacy and boundaries. If you were to survey 10 Christians and ask them the question, what does the Bible teach about sexual intimacy? Uh, those answers from those 10, quest- 10 Christians would, would likely boil down to this. Uh, number one, don't do it until you're married. Number two, if you do it outside of marriage, you'll go to hell. And number three, if your spouse wants it, you'd better do it regardless of whether or not you want to do it because he or she may struggle with sexual temptation and go do it with someone else. Case closed. Any questions? That's what many Christians believe is the entirety of what the Bible teaches about sexual intimacy. But if sexual intimacy is such an important topic, don't you think that God would say a a bit more about it? Well, it turns out he does. God has a lot to say in his word about sexual intimacy, especially in the Old Testament. The Bible has a lot to say about it. So we're going to take a a closer look at four key passages today. It's not an exhaustive study of the subject, but I want to hit the highlights today and give you a a good overview of what the Bible teaches us about uh, having sexual intimacy and boundaries in our marriages. I want you to remember, as we are about to look at that first of the four passages in Genesis 2, remember what we saw two weeks ago as we began this series. We were looking briefly at that verse in Genesis 1, verse 27, where it says God created both men and women in his image. But we find out in chapter 2 of Genesis that God created Adam first. We read in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Then in verse 15, God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. But we read in verse 18, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then two verses further down in verse 20 of Genesis 2, we read, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So remember that that term suitable helper there in Genesis 2 verses 18 and 20 literally means corresponding face to face. God created Eve to correspond face to face with Adam. God created a wife 
to correspond face to face with her husband. Now, let's pick up in verse 21 of Genesis chapter two, beginning in verse 21, we read. The Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For that reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God custom made Eve to correspond face to face with her husband, Adam. And that face to face corresponding includes sexual intimacy. There is an inseparable connection between verses 18, 24, 21 and 26 should say those in order. Verses 18, 21, 24 and 26. Actually, there is no 26. Verse 25. God created a wife to correspond face to face with her husband, face to face, chest to chest, legs to legs. And when a husband and wife are face to face, naked without shame, those two are closer to each other than two human beings could ever be. And this physical intimacy between a husband and his wife is just right for bringing a new human life into the world. Two weeks ago, I shared with you that this beautiful passage here in Genesis two reveals the first two purposes for which God created marriage. Purpose number one, remember, God created marriage to provide a lifelong helper who is just right for you. And then purpose number two, to provide unashamed sexual intimacy that will lead to bearing children. So think about how remarkable that is. Contrary to popular belief, not only does God's word talk about sexual intimacy, it talks about sexual intimacy on page two. On the second page of the Bible, in the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter two, God is already touching on sexual intimacy. So should we draw the conclusion that sexual intimacy is important to God? Absolutely, we should draw that conclusion. Should we draw the conclusion that there are certain things about sexual intimacy that God wants his followers to know? Once again, absolutely. There are certain things about it that God wants us to know. It is a priority to him. Today, I believe God wants us to boldly go where most sermons have not dared go before. Today, I believe God wants us to dive into his word and learn At least the highlights of what he teaches about sexual intimacy. Now, why would we do that? Well, first and foremost, we're going to dive into God's word and talk about this subject because we are a Bible teaching church. We don't just touch on the subjects that are comfortable for us. If it's important to God and he's prioritized it in his word, then we need to teach on that subject and prioritize it as well. And I also think that. There's another reason why God wants us to touch on this subject of sexual intimacy. You see, as Americans living in the 21st century, we really, when it comes to this subject, have two strikes against us. Strike number one, 
We are surrounded by perverts. Wouldn't you agree? We're surrounded by perverts. Our culture is obsessed with sex. You know, it's true. It's everywhere. It's in our TV shows. It's in our movies. It's in our music. And uh, don't even get me started on what we find when we start surfing the Internet. The worst smut sexually that you could even imagine and beyond that can be found on the Internet. We are such a sexualized culture. You can't even take a covid test without first having to fill out a form that asks you about your sexual identity. This is just insane. We've become such a perverted, such a sexualized culture. So that's the first strike against us. We're bombarded with dirty depictions of sex that grieve the heart of God, that grieve the heart of God. Strike number two, churches tend to ignore the topic of sexual intimacy. You know, it's true. Some of you maybe went through most of your life without ever hearing a single sermon on this subject, even though it's important and prioritized in God's word. Many pastors ignore it. Now, they tend to do it for a number of reasons. Some pastors ignore it because it's uncomfortable. Other pastors ignore it because, uh, you know, it's just not popular. It's just not politically correct what God has to say about sexual intimacy in the Bible. And then other pastors avoid it because when it comes down to it, they really don't understand how important this subject is to God. Therefore, far too many Christian couples begin dating relationships and begin their marriage relationships, not having a clue about what God teaches about proper sexual intimacy. And as a result, our dating relationships and our marriages suffer. Well, I don't want our dating relationships and our marriages to suffer. So we're going to teach on this subject today. So in Genesis 2, we learn some wonderful foundational things about the first husband and wife coming together, naked, feeling no shame, coming together, becoming one flesh. The second passage I want us to take a look at is over in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. So I'll give you a moment to turn there. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, we'll begin in verse 2. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul answers several questions that the Christians in Corinth had sent to him in a letter. And so here in chapter 7, Paul is addressing one of their questions that had to deal with marriage. So as Paul answers their question in chapter 7, he takes the opportunity to address the importance of sexual intimacy within A Christian marriage. So we're in first Corinthians seven, beginning in verse two, Paul writes, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Now, the city of Corinth in Paul's day had a lot in common with Southern California in our own day. 
It was a very perverted, sexualized culture. In the city of Corinth in Paul's day, uh, there were prostitutes all over the place. At one point, uh, 100 or 200 years earlier, there had been this temple on the hill above Corinth that boasted 1,000 temple prostitutes. And so in Paul's day, there weren't 1,000 applying their trade from that temple, but there were still a lot of them still around. And so it was just such a sexualized culture. Prostitution was rampant. Premarital sex was rampant. Extramarital affairs were rampant. And homosexuality was rampant. All there in the city of Corinth. And so it left those Corinthian questions kind of confused about how proper sexual intimacy would look in a Christian marriage. So Paul tells them plainly here in the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that God has provided a safe place where Christians can with Christians, specifically those with sexual needs, because he does address singles in this chapter as well. But Christians with sexual needs have this safe haven that God has set up where they can go ahead and practice sexuality in a way that is holy before God in a way that doesn't get them waiting in the cesspool of immorality that was surrounding them. And this wonderful uh, place in which Christians can enjoy their sexuality is simply called marriage. Paul is very careful with his uh, wording in verse 2. Notice that the words man, woman, wife, and husband are all singular. Therefore, Paul is making it clear that God doesn't approve of polygamy, being married to multiple spouses at the same time. He's making it clear that God doesn't approve of premarital sex or adultery, having sexual relations with someone you're not married to. And he doesn't approve of homosexuality, having sex with someone who's of the same gender. Paul makes that very clear here in these verses here in 1 Corinthians 7. According to God's word, There is only one context within which sexually active Christians can have sex. That is, answer it with me, marriage. That is the only context within which God allows us to enjoy sexual intimacy. Now, what is Paul getting at in verses 3 through 5? These have been a source of confusion and a source of misinterpretation by many Christians over the years. Here's just a quick summary of what he says in verses 3 through 5. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, what is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying this. When a bride and groom become one flesh on their wedding night, they begin sharing their bodies. What is his is not just his anymore. Now he's sharing it with her. What is hers is not just hers anymore. Now she's sharing it with him. You see how Paul is saying that in those verses? One of the gifts you give your spouse on your wedding night is the gift of your body. You offer it as a gift and you use it to serve your spouse, to meet his or her sexual needs. Now, at this point, something needs to be made crystal clear because many Christians, particularly men, misunderstand what Paul is saying. 
Notice in this passage that Paul is putting the burden of responsibility on the Christian who is reading his words, not on the spouse of the Christian who is reading these words. In other words, if you are a Christian husband, God's word is telling you here in 1 Corinthians 7, husband, fulfill your marital duty to your wife. Your body is not your own. Share it freely with your wife to serve her and meet her sexual needs. So husbands, if you're hearing this message today, God is speaking to you, not to her. He's speaking to you. You fulfill your marital duty and let God deal with your wife and her marital duty. Got it? In the same way, if you're a Christian wife, God's word is telling you, wife, fulfill your marital duty to your husband. Your body is not your own. Share it freely with your husband to serve him and meet his sexual needs. Wife, if you're hearing this message today, God is speaking to you, not to him. You fulfill your marital duty and let God deal with him about his marital duty. So don't twist the scripture to say this is something I'm supposed to pound to my spouse over the head with. See, it's right here in God's word. Uh uh-uh. Paul is clearly speaking to the Christian who is reading it. That means he's speaking to you. You let God deal with your spouse. Now, God knew that we by nature are selfish and that selfishness is bound to spill over into the area of sexual intimacy. So I believe that's one of the reasons he gave us our third passage we'll look at today. Ephesians chapter five, beginning in verse twenty five. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Ephesians five will start in verse twenty five. Many Christians wonder if God has a specific list of do's and don'ts when it comes to sexual intimacy within our marriages. And the short and sweet answer is no, he doesn't. God doesn't have this specific list of do's and don'ts. But what he does do is provide some beautiful, powerful principles that will help you make those specific decisions in your sexual intimacy in your marriage with your spouse. And so look at what God says here in Ephesians 5 through the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 25. Uh, Beautiful principles are laid out here about intimacy in our marriages. Beginning in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Now, this passage is familiar to to many of you, but chances are you've never viewed this passage as God's guide for you in the area of sexual intimacy. I want to suggest to you that there are three principles that apply from this passage to sexual intimacy within our marriages. I believe this passage boils down to this. 
when it comes to sexual intimacy. Number one, true sexual intimacy must be grounded in agape love, not in selfish lust. I believe we find that here in verse 25. You can see it, can't you? Look at verse 25 again. That's the first key point and principle that we can pull from this passage and apply to our sexual relationships with our spouse. Guess which Greek word for love is used throughout this passage we just read? You guessed it. It's a Greek word, agape. Agape, remember, is the highest form of love. It's a selfless kind of love, not a selfish kind of love. Agape love is love that is unconditionally given. And it is Christ-like love. And so Paul is telling us when it comes to sexual intimacy, it's grounded in agape love. It must be. It can be like a hurricane sweeping through a mobile home park, destroying everything in its wake if it isn't grounded in agape love. Many of us have experienced sex apart from sexual intimacy within a marriage. If sex is taken out of its proper context, it can be so, so destructive. It must be grounded in agape love. Uh, Principle number two, true sexual intimacy involves self-sacrifice, giving yourself up for the good of your spouse. You can see that in verse 25, can't you? It involves self-sacrifice. According to God's word, your main focus during sexual intimacy should be pleasing your spouse, not pleasing yourself. I love how Warren Wearsby says that he writes, sexual love is a beautiful tool to build with, not a weapon to fight with. Isn't that good? Sexual intimacy is a beautiful tool to build your marriage with, not a weapon to bludgeon your husband with, right? Far too often, Wives use sex as a weapon to manipulate their husbands. And far too many husbands give their wives guilt trips about sex. That's not conducive to sexual intimacy. True sexual intimacy involves self-sacrifice, giving yourself up for the good of your spouse. Finally, principle number three. True sexual intimacy is holy and cleanses your spouse. Of these three principles, this is probably the one that is new to you. Actually, sexual intimacy can purify and cleanse your spouse when, once again, it's doing it's being done in the context of a loving marriage. I want you to think about this third principle and, and really take it to heart. According to God's word, all sex outside of marriage is perverted, regardless of whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. It's dirty. It makes both sexual partners dirty. Now, why is that? Well, it's that way because God created sex to be like the water in your washing machine. What? Really? Bear with me on this. Sex is designed to be like water in your washing machine. When it's kept in the context within the parameters and the perimeter of that washing machine, it will cleanse your clothes, won't it? But if you take that same water and you toss it out on the dirt, suddenly when you put your clothes through that water, it makes them much dirtier than they would be on their own. That's a great description of sex within marriage. 
It cleanses outside of marriage. It pollutes. It corrupts. It makes dirty. So think about that. Sexual intimacy was designed by God, among other things, to help cleanse and purify your spouse. Isn't that wild? We we can't even fully wrap our minds around that. And so within a godly marriage, sexual intimacy can actually help cleanse your spouse of lustful thoughts. Paul touched on that in 1 Corinthians 7, that passage we looked at a few minutes ago. Sexual intimacy can help cleanse your spouse of discouragement and insecurities. And sexual intimacy within the marriage can help cleanse your spouse of feelings of rejection. It is a powerful, powerful thing. Now, sexual intimacy cannot cleanse your spouse of her sins or his sins. It it doesn't forgive sins. It doesn't cleanse in that way. Only Jesus can cleanse your spouse of their sins. But make no mistake about it. I'm telling you, there is cleansing power in sexual intimacy, and that is by God's design. So is there such a thing as holy sex? Yes, there is. Biblically, there is such a thing. When we allow God's word here in Ephesians 5 to guide our sexual intimacy with our spouse within our marriage. Now, up to this point, we've talked a lot about a husband's duty to be sexually intimate with his wife and a wife's duty to be sexually intimate with her husband. But thank God, sexual intimacy is not just a matter of duty. So many of us would go, that's a relief. It's not just a matter of duty. It was created by God also to be a source of intense pleasure for both the husband and the wife within the marriage. In fact, God has dedicated an entire book of the Bible to the topic of romantic love and sensual pleasure within marriage. The book is called, as you might guess, the Song of Solomon, oftentimes called the Song of Songs. And so that's going to be the fourth passage we're going to look at quickly. Flip back to the Old Testament. It's just a little more than halfway through your Bible. Flip back to Song of Solomon. It may be in your Bible called Song of Songs. If you are married and you enjoy sexual intimacy with your spouse, then you should be really, really glad that you're not Muslim. Because I'm telling you, there is nothing in the Quran that comes close to saying what Song of Solomon says within the pages of our Bible. And you also should be very glad you're not Mormon, because there's nothing in the Book of Mormon that comes close to Song of Solomon. Think about it. Of the 66 books of the Bible, God dedicates an entire book to talking about sensual pleasure and romantic love within a marriage. According to 1 Kings 4, verse 32, King Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. But the very first verse of Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1, makes it clear that of all those songs that he wrote, this one here is his song of songs. In other words, it is the greatest song of all. Song of Solomon is a beautiful, even sensual duet sung between a groom and his bride. It's a beautiful, powerful book. Listen to how this book is summarized in the Holman Christian Standard study notes. It says it this way. The Song of Songs celebrates the love of Solomon and his bride, who is called the Shulamite in chapter 6, verse 13. 
The excitement of courtship, the beauty of the wedding night, the sexuality of the first night and subsequent nights, as well as tender friendship. All of these elements make this book a celebration of romance and marital sensuality as God intended them to be. Now, some of you may be surprised to find that that kind of thing is in the Bible, but it is. And once again, it's there for a reason, because sexual intimacy within marriage is very important to God. The first two chapters of Song of Solomon record Solomon and his bride's anticipation of their upcoming wedding day. It's clear that these two are crazy about each other as you read through those first two chapters. And then in chapter three, their wedding day is described and in chapters four through eight, their wedding night and sexual intimacy is described. That's the focus in chapters four through eight, their wedding night and the nights that proceeded past that initial wedding night. And I want you to listen to how Solomon's bride describes him in chapter five, verses 10 through 16. As they experience that sexual intimacy, this is what she has to say. In chapter five, starting in verse 10, she writes, my lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover. This is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. Now, if we look at these with immature eyes, we might be willing or we might be tempted, I should say, to go like this. (laughs) Gag me. This is this is just nauseating. But but I want you to to look at this passage and, and ask yourself the question, why did God put it in the Bible? Now, these descriptions she gives of Solomon, we wouldn't use those descriptions today. Would you ladies of your husband? But let's not miss her point. She's crazy about her husband. She thinks he is so handsome and no other man can compare to him. She is crazy about her husband. Now, listen to how Solomon describes his bride there on the wedding night in chapter seven, beginning in verse one. Now, notice he starts describing her and works from the ground up. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. Your navel is rounded like a goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. Yeah, that was actually a compliment. Looking toward Damascus, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, O love, with your delights. Once he makes his 
way to the top of her head. He begins working his way back south again. Verse seven, your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. There is no doubt that Solomon is crazy about his bride. She, he thinks she is the most gorgeous thing in the world, the most beautiful woman he has ever seen, and he just can't take his eyes off her. Now, I've got to tell you, I've personally tried some of these pickup lines uh, that Solomon uh, uses here in Song of Solomon on the Shunammite woman. Uh, especially, I, I've shared with my wife, uh, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. We read that over in chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. I've shared with her, uh, honey, as I've held her hands, honey, your, your teeth are, are, are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. And I've got to tell you, those lines didn't work very well for me. So husbands, just a, a little word to the wise, uh, use these lines of Solomon at your own risk. <laughs> it may not go over too well, but we get the point, don't we? They were crazy about each other. And in their culture and in their culture's way, they were trying to put into words how wild they were about each other, how much they adored and admired and cared for and wanted the other. As much as two human beings could ever want one another. As you read through Song of Solomon, it becomes very clear, very fast that Solomon and the Shunammite woman deeply loved each other and deep, passionate sexual intimacy was a clear expression of that love. So does God want husbands and wives to enjoy deep, passionate sexual intimacy? The Bible is very clear. Yes, He does. It's one of God's most wonderful wedding gifts to a husband and wife. God didn't just give us sex to make babies and to fulfill our marital duty to keep our spouse from lusting after someone they're not married to. God also gave us sexual intimacy as a gift to share together with the one we love more than any other person on the planet, our spouse. As Solomon's bride says so well from the get go in Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse two, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. God wants us to understand that sexual intimacy shared between a husband and his wife is so much more gratifying and special than drinking a beer. That's temporary pleasure than drinking your favorite margarita at your favorite Mexican restaurant. That's temporary. It's even more pleasurable than watching your favorite movie or seeing your favorite sports team win or even having casual sex with someone you're not married to. There's nothing that compares to the pleasure that God has created to exist within sexual intimacy between a husband and his wife. Now, I've just given you this quick summary of what the Bible teaches about this important subject, and I believe it really does boil down to these four biblical insights that I want to share with you in closing. These are powerful. Jot them down. Remember them. They're so important. Insight number one, sexual intimacy helps bring unity in a marriage. Becoming one flesh doesn't just create a physical bound, excuse me, a physical bond, but it creates emotional and spiritual bonds as well. Never forget that. 
Sex is never just a physical act. It's much more than that. Sexual intimacy is physical, emotional, and spiritual. It's one of the reasons that sex will always go awry when we make it something that's just physical. Insight number two. Sexual intimacy in marriage must be grounded in agape love. It should be self-sacrificing and it should be cleansing. If it doesn't cleanse the other person, then in all likelihood it's out of bounds with the guidelines God has given us in his word. And 1 Corinthians 7.5 also makes it clear that sexual intimacy should be a regular occurrence within our marriages, especially for young couples whose hormones are very, very active. Enough said on that. Insight number three. Sexual intimacy is a wedding gift from God intended to bring intense, guilt-free pleasure to a husband and wife. If you and your spouse ever doubt this, just read Song of Solomon together. I dare you. Read that book together. It's in the Bible for a reason. And I believe it honors God when you read that book and try to carry out some of what is demonstrated in that book. Finally, insight number four. Sexual intimacy provides a living illustration of how passionately Jesus Christ loves us and desires to be close to us. I couldn't allow this sermon to come to an end without pointing out this powerful insight from God's word. I wish we had more time to touch on it, but I'll just quickly say this. Listen again to what Paul writes in Ephesians 5 verses 31 to 32. As he's giving instructions to husbands, he writes, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, this is a profound mystery. Everything I'm saying to husbands on a larger, grander, spiritual level is talking about Jesus and his love for the church. You see, the the very best marriages are a living illustration of Christ's love for the church, which in the New Testament is often called, as you know, the bride of Christ. So I want you to chew on this. This is so important. This side of heaven, the most passionate sexual intimacy you ever experience with your spouse could be the closest you will ever get to understanding Christ's passionate love for sinners like you and me. Does that make sense? The closest you ever feel to your spouse, and in that moment of intimacy, when you feel closer to her than anyone else, you love her more than anyone else, that may be the closest you ever get to grasping how much Jesus Christ loves you. Oh, we serve an amazing Savior. Behold how much... Jesus Christ loves us. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for your love. And I thank you, O Lord, for this wonderful gift that you've given to husbands and wives. Help us to treasure that gift. Lord, help us to not be lazy when it comes to exercising and utilizing this gift in our marriages. 
Lord, I pray that we would be Christians who seek to bring joy and pleasure to our spouse. I pray that we would be Christians who put the needs of our spouses above our own needs. I pray that we would be Christians that never allow sexuality to fail to be grounded in agape love. Lord, a beautiful, selfless, unconditional, self-sacrificing kind of love. Lord Jesus, I I pray that you would help us to have even just a, a, a glimpse of that romantic love restored to our relationships that we read about in Song of Solomon. Lord, some of us have allowed our romance and our marriages to fizzle and fade. I pray, oh God, that you would stir the flames once again. Lord, that we would love our spouse on all levels. That we would love them spiritually, yes. We would love them emotionally, yes. But love them physically as well. And Father, whatever you desire for our relationships, may we carry that out for your honor and glory. And Lord, as we love our spouses, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to the truth of how much you love us. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for your amazing, indescribable, exhilarating love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, I'm telling you, He loves you more than life itself. You think you love your spouse? Jesus loves you even more than that. Isn't that amazing? We can't even wrap our minds around that. He loves you that much. And He's reaching out to you today and asking you to put Him in the driver's seat of your life. So won't you do that? Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and choose to follow Him as your Savior and Lord beginning today. If you've made that decision, I encourage you to reach out to us at the church office. Our phone number is 760-246-4100. That's 760-246-4100. Or you can email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. Info at greaterimpact.cc. However you choose to reach out to us, please do. If we can help you in any way, if we can pray for you or help lead you into that relationship with Jesus Christ, we would love to be able to help you with that. And church family, it's been a blessing to be with you in worship today. We'll have an opportunity to take communion together in just a few moments. So hopefully you'll stay and join me for communion. But if not, it's been a blessing to be with you today. Congratulations. You made it through a tough, uncomfortable message. Uh, so way to go, church. I'm proud of you. I hope that you use this message as a tool, passing it on to someone else, another couple perhaps, that you know would be blessed by it. We need to spread God's word. As it, co- as it relates to sexual intimacy, it's such an important subject, especially in this day and age in which we live. God bless you as you serve him, love him and trust him this week, all for his glory.